My name is Ray Michelle Richards. I'm the editor-in-chief of BrokenJoysticks.net. I'm proud to introduce our first podcast of the year, episode 10 of BrokenCast, where we will be interviewing the developer of The Bridge and the upcoming Tumblestone, Ty Taylor. Joining me today... Hello. Joining me today is our managing editor, Fiona Fox. Hi, I'm Fiona Fox. And our editor who handles VR and convention coverage, among other things, and also game developer, Renee Gittins. Hi. <laughs> I'll start things off. Uh, Ty, thank you for joining us today. Um, so we've covered Tumblestone in an excellent piece that uh, Renee wrote that will be in our show notes. And in that interview, you mentioned that Tumblestone has a campaign that will span... 30 hours across many different uh, worlds. Can you kind of give us the elevator pitch for your upcoming game's story mode? Sure. Uh, 30 hours is kind of the uh, lower bound estimate, too. Uh, basically, the way it works is um, it's divided into a series of, of puzzles, which obviously increase in, in difficulty as you go. It's also divided into a series of, of 12 different worlds, where each of these, these sections has its own theme. So the, base sec- the first section is, is really basic and easy, but after a while it ramps up as blocker pieces that turn off and on every other shot, and when you're dealing with triplets, that is a big complication. Wild card pieces, uh, it makes you shoot twice every time you, you normally would only shoot once, different things like that just to, to spice up the, the gameplay quite a bit. Uh, and we're also actually working on a, a story, like an actual legitimate cutscene-style story that we put like, a lot of time and money into as well to, to kind of go along with that. Uh, so, how do you plan on adding the story aspect to your game? I mean, it's, it's kind of uncommon to have uh, story elements in such a strictly puzzle game. And uh... I know. I, I felt a lot of people were saying, like, oh, you know, this gameplay is fun for the story mode. This is probably mostly people coming from the multiplayer where it's really action-packed. But for the people who are going into the story mode, they're like, yeah, this is, this is great, but we want some, like, incentive to go further. And so, like, we thought it is a story mode, so why not just come up with a story for it? Uh, so basically the, the format of it is just to uh, to have, like, a comic book-style cutscene. So uh, every tenth level in the in the campaign, you get a, a series of six images where each image has just a few lines of dialogue between the characters, and it kind of develops the characters, develops the environment, kind of alludes to what's going on in the world of Tumblestone. Uh, it's fairly basic, but we spent a lot of time uh, writing and drawing it all up. So the artist of the game actually made these high-def illustrations for each of these uh, each of these comic book style illustrations. Tumblestone art-wise is kind of silly. Um, do you think the story mode is going to take on that same tone? The story is is very very silly. Yes, um, one of the writers uh, who is also one of the programmers on the team, but he's He's uh, an amateur writer, but by amateur I just mean he doesn't get paid for it. He's been writing for 10, 15 years probably, just doing like a novel uh, a month every November for National Writing Month and just writing a lot of skits in his lifetime. I think he's a funny guy, and the story is, in my opinion, fairly funny. It's it's silly. It's it's kind of lighthearted humor, but um, it's not meant to be super serious. Like It's a comic-y style, art style of the game, so it's kind of a, a comic-y style story to fit it. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit about the company that develops that you guys develops Quantum Astrophysicist Guild. That's a really cool name, first of all. Um, Thanks. And I actually read another article about you recently, and it, it mentioned that you do a lot of also like business and PR stuff for the company. So what's it like to kind of not be the faceless developer and be the big face of the company? I guess. I don't know how big of a face I am for the company, but um, it is an incredibly small company. It's four people, and I'm the only actual legally full-time employee, even though we all work full-time. Everyone else is technically a contractor. But um, So it's, it's my company, so I, I have to handle all of the, the business and, and press relations and, and marketing stuff, basically because we want to self-publish the game. Like We could hire a third-party publisher to do all this, but we also don't want to give another company 30% when it's stuff I'm completely capable of doing myself, even though I don't like it as much as game development. So that's typically the reason why I do all these things is because we have so few people. We don't want to hire a fifth full-time person just to do this when I can do it myself. 
Do you have experience in business ops with that kind of stuff, or is this I, the first time? Well, with the bridge, it was the first time, so I kind of dove headfirst into that. Um, it's kind of a student coming out of college, just work having, having uh, started the bridge in, in college, and then kind of a year and a half after graduating, releasing it, just like diving headfirst into this this madness of launching a fairly major indie game is. Yeah, I, I ramped up pretty quickly on that. So, did, did you say that uh, you don't like being in the limelight at all? I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't say that I don't like it. It's fun. <laughs> it's, it's fun being up on stage at the PAX 10 panel and like cracking jokes and having an audience of 400 people laugh. I mean, it's, it feels like a rock star from time to time. But at the same time, I, I don't know if that's why I do it. I just like making games. It's almost just like a, a side effect. Let's talk about the bridge for a couple minutes. So that's that's the other giant elephant in the room. That game, very successful. I mean, huge, huge game. Tons of social media following. I mean, I remember seeing it on YouTube, like, every day and trending, like, various people playing the bridge. Do you think that, like, the social media aspect, having people, YouTubers, like, big YouTubers, do Let's Plays or do video, like, profiles, think that helped a lot? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, there, there's a lot of ways to get people's attention and, and drive an audience to your game. And, and for the last several years, uh, Twitch and YouTube and, and Let's Players and just kind of honest, real-time reactions that you get from Let's Plays, I think that's a, a huge driver. People love watching that kind of stuff. It sort of reminds me of, and, and don't don't skewer me here, but it reminds me of Happy Wheels' success. Like, the success of Happy Wheels, your game is obviously much more involved than Happy Wheels was. It was a, two, a 2D, and but it was also a physics-based game. And, like... Yeah. Happy Wheels would probably have gone past by without much of a much of a big deal happening about it had it not been for the fact that people picked it up on YouTube and it just ran really really far on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I've seen so much action on the bridge on YouTube. Like, interesting to see this in this new world of new media. How much success? How much of the success do you think really came from that? And how much was from? You also cleaned up quite a few awards with the bridge. It, it did pretty well at PAX and at a few other shows. Yeah. Um... I, th- I think a lot of a lot more of the success actually came from from the word of mouth kind of uh, kind of promotions, the implicit promotions, than actually from awards. Um, awards are great, and I guess awards were a means to getting people to play in the first place. So like major YouTubers or major press people probably get, I mean the the big big guys probably get hundreds of emails a day from from little indie teams. It's like, hey, look at this game I'm finishing. I'm releasing on on Steam in a couple weeks. Um, but like, if you have you know actual backing saying like, oh, this is my game I'm releasing. It was in the PAX 10 and and all these other things that it was in. I think it might make it stand out in that case. And because they then respect the game, they can they're they're motivated to write an article or do a YouTube video. So. In that case, I think awards may have helped, but I don't actually think awards helped uh, for the general audience. I don't think anyone's gone to the Steam page, or, I mean, a few people probably have, but I think most of the Steam uh, crowd, I guess, uh, doesn't go to the Bridges Steam page and say, oh, this was in the PAX 10 and IGF and whatever. That's cool. I'm going to buy it because of that. They probably buy it because they're, they see their friends playing it or they heard about it on a, their favorite YouTuber or something like that. Can I just ask really quick where you came up with the idea for the bridge? Like, it's such a it's such a fun game to just play for like an hour, but mm-hmm. I would never have thought of. I guess I guess it was kind of uh, in two thousand nine. I was I was thinking about just weird things to do with gravity, and I, I almost wanted to make like a mod of, of any other game, just to take a generic maybe platformer and change gravity around. Uh, but then I decided to make my own game because I didn't want to. I didn't think a mod would be very profitable, so I I kind of started playing around with uh, my own platforming engine where you can change gravity. And then after I started thinking about all the ways I can deal with with gravity changing, I uh, I kind of was reminded of MC Escher's work, and it kind of clicked that. Uh, combining Escher and uh, and gravity kind of worked really really well together, like peanut butter and jelly. So I just kind of rolled with it and, and kept on drawing from Escher's works. 
So when you were first playing with gravity like this, uh, did you expect that to be part of a puzzle-solving aspect of it, or are you just screwing around with gravity? Yeah, I was just screwing around with gravity. Actually, my, my very, very first prototypes of the bridge back in, like, 2009 were, like, fast-paced and, like, jumping around and, like, bullets coming at you, but you can swing around with gravity and stuff. But uh, then I started thinking about, like, gravitational vortexes and, like, different parallel planes of gravity, and I... Uh, I kind of realized it was going to be a, a puzzle game just because of all the, the intricacies there. So, uh, and and with the kind of tie into Escher, it kind of felt really natural for it to be a puzzle game because Escher's uh, just Escher's still drawings are, are puzzles in and of themselves. So it was kind of cool to just to integrate that into a into what would eventually become a puzzle game. So, uh, at what point in the bridge's development did you come up uh, with the name of your company? Oh. Um, when I had to, um, I, I guess there was just a, a, eventually a, a point that I, I just had to have a contract for something. I guess maybe I was maybe I was uh, talking to Valve or something, and they're like, "Oh yeah, so we'll we'll send uh, uh, our paperwork to your lawyer and get you set up on Steam." I'm like, "Well, I don't even have a company yet." So I uh, I found a lawyer real quick, and he actually is super good. He's in the Seattle area, um, and I incorporated, and I came up with a company name out of absolutely nowhere, and I wrote it on legal documents just to annoy people mostly. I think it's a pretty cool company name in hindsight. <laughs> it, it, is, it is quite a lengthy company name, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so we can uh, we can shift the gears again and go a little bit into your background here. So the article I was reading about, you said that you used to work for Microsoft. That's right. And specifically that you worked on the Xbox One team. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, yeah, that's that's why I'm in Seattle. I uh, I moved here originally because Microsoft had given me an offer out of college, so I uh, I moved to Redmond, which is you know 15 minutes from Seattle, and uh, started working on the Xbox One team. And uh, basically, I wasn't working on on games per se, but I wanted to you know I wanted to of course, so I tried to 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 break into that by working on Xbox One and eventually moving over into games. So that never happened at Microsoft. So I was just doing. Uh, Platform engineering on on the on the actual system itself, and all that all the while I was uh, still working on the bridge uh, because I started that in college and it was half done by the time I started at Microsoft. So I was moonlighting the entire time, uh, working seven or eight hours a day at Microsoft, probably not even forty hours a week if I could get away with it. Just so I could come home and on nights and weekends spend as much time on the bridge and finish that up. Um, and then basically once once the game launched on Steam, I. I wanted to finish up the Xbox One because I, I launched the bridge on Steam a few months before Xbox One, and I felt a kind of kind of a commitment to it just because I had worked on it so long. But pretty soon after the Xbox One launched, I was like, "Well, my my job's kind of done here. I'm going to go indie." Do you think your uh, experience at Microsoft and your connections at Microsoft helped you to launch on Xbox One as well as Steam? Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, I I certainly you know I, I worked on the the Xbox One, so I was in the same building as you know many of the account managers and, and Microsoft first-party publishers that I, I work with now in my my indie life. Uh, we're literally working in the same building, seeing each other like once a month. So once I I started to you know become more known in the indie scene, I was still at Microsoft, and so they would eventually recognize me in the hallway. I was like, hey, didn't I just see you at IGF? I'm like, yep, I work here too. Bye. Please don't tell uh, legal or anything. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was weird. Like I was actually, um, I, I definitely needed to leave Microsoft. I think for a lot of conflict of interest uh, ish things before really going into it full time as an indie. Like um, they do have a pretty open moonlighting policy, but as soon as you start doing like PlayStation and Wii U stuff, they're not as happy about it. So I'd like to take things uh, and talk about Tumblestone a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so you've mentioned that there's some really interesting gameplay modifiers that will come up in Tumblestone uh, to keep fresh, especially over like a 30-hour campaign, and that all of the puzzles in the campaign have either been hand-designed uh, by yourself or members of your four-person team or curated. Uh -huh. um, so can you uh, can you give us kind of some background into the gameplay modifiers and maybe even the puzzle creation process? How sure. will this game stay interesting to players for such a long time? Well, uh, first of all, you, all of the uh, the puzzle modes, the gameplay modifiers, are are based from a, a random generator. Uh, I basically spent probably two years now working on this puzzle generator, which I can basically I, I define the rules. 
to the generator, and the generator, based on those rules, will create puzzles that work, and uh, it can sort them by difficulty and, and other interesting metrics that I define. Um, and so that's included in the game. And so the game actually, in addition to the fixed number of story mode levels, which I've basically handpicked, uh, and, and in some cases design myself, uh, you can actually go in and just play an infinite number of puzzles, and that's how the multiplayer works. It'll just give you a completely random puzzle every single time uh, based on the modifiers that you specified. Um, so about the modifiers specifically, those are just, they're just rule sets. Um, uh, Tumblestone works uh, by trying to clear the board uh, in sets of three at a time from the bottom, and so I just do weird things that affect it. For example, um, normally you could do like blue, 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 but one of the modifiers uh, says like while this modifier is turned on, you can't actually repeat a color. So you can't do blue, 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 blue. You have to do blue, 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 yellow, 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 which seems simple enough, but actually really changes the way you think about the puzzles as you're playing them. Um, and yeah, I'm on the level where that was recently added. Um, World 4, I believe? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it certainly uh, adds a, a different level of difficulty to the game and really changes how you, you approach the puzzles. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, if, just at the beginning, it looks like a regular puzzle. So you go into it and you're like, oh, wait, I actually can't go this route that for the last 90 levels my brain has been trained to do. Because, oh, obviously, if I do blue, 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 I'm going to solve it easily. But now I can't do that, and it completely restructures the way you need to think about a puzzle. And all of the modifiers do that to quite a bit of an extent. Uh, so the modifiers can be enabled in multiplayer as well, right? Mm-hmm. That's um, correct. Do you think you could foresee a potential rise in uh, competitive puzzle games in the esports community, or do you think it's going to stay in the more casual realm? Hopefully Tumblestone completely uh, disrupts the, the hardcore gamers and everything turns into a puzzle afterwards. Esports! <laughs> Yeah. Well, esports, and, and puzzles, esports puzzles. It's it's Maybe. really entertaining to watch, and people can be very engaged trying to to pick out the next blocks that they would pick as they're watching other people uh, uh, do it. So I I can foresee that. Um, do you have any built-in support for what would be like that kind of uh, serious competitive play? Well, I mean, we ha- we don't have like built-in tournaments per se. I mean. Players are always capable of organizing that themselves, but we do have like rule sets built into the game, and uh, we have gotten requests from uh, like the more hardcore esports people, like an Evo and, and whatnot, that they want things like um, Tumblestone has a built-in uh, shot guard. So like, if you uh, are lined up to a column and you're playing so quickly that you press A twice, you, I mean, there's a ton of energy in the game, so a lot of people would double tap the A button to shoot. Um, but if that second shot is actually incorrect, it will just silently ignore it, and it will guard you against doing it, and it's just like it didn't happen, uh, which is a feature that's on by default because it's, it's actually really, really nice, but the more uh, hardcore gamers want an option just to turn that off. So if they decide uh, that as a, in a tournament setting or whatever that you should play with that off, then they can turn it off. And so we added a few things like that, uh, different you know rule set variations, different uh, win limits, uh, whatever they think is makes the best tournament. Usually, the the hardcore uh, esports gamers know better or know what they want. I could foresee uh, competitive puzzling esports. Uh, I'm not good at puzzle games, so I would not participate. But um, I could see it, and I would watch it. That's what a lot of people at uh, uh, conventions say about Tumblestone. Like, you'll go to PAX, and you're like, "Oh no, I'm not good at puzzle games, or I don't play puzzle games." But then they'll get dragged in by their friends and. Uh, they're the one who's wanting to stay after after the game's over. Uh, Tumblestone has like that kind of weird effect where it is a puzzle game. You do need to think, but it also has like that that really hardcore element when you're when you're playing it. Really gets your uh, your blood pumping and and has that adrenaline going. So I know that from your knowledge of um, of Tumblestone, you're really really good at the game. Do you have to resist playing against? Uh, people at conventions to, to not sort of smash people's hopes or, or what do you do in that situation? If someone is, is playing by themselves, uh, if, if there's ever two or more people I just don't play, I'm like, you two play together. If someone's there by themselves and I have the multiplayer demo set up, I'm like, come on, come play, I'll put you against some bots for now and I'll, uh, I'll have them play like one round just by themselves so they know how to play. But then uh, if they insist that I play, I'll just hold the controller upside down um, and still win against absolutely anybody if I do that. Um, I actually added 
handicapping to the game, so I can like add extra blocks to my own board, uh, just so I can play with people comfortably at conventions, and I still hold the controller upside down and win. Renee showed us a photo of you absolutely destroying with an upside down controller. I was pressed by that. Uh, was there ever a point that you didn't do that, or is it just because honestly you just spend your time playing this game? So like that's. I played Tumblestone every single day for the last two years. Um, I, I'm definitely, right now, the, the number one player in the world, but that's not surprising since I'm the designer and the game's not out yet. I'm, Tumblestone has online networking, so I'm really, really looking forward to the day when I, I log into Steam just to play someone online and I actually legitimately lose. I, I cannot wait to get beaten at my own game. It's like a life goal of mine. Was that hard to program? I know I actually uh, have a few friends that, that are working on games, and one of the hardest things that they've said to, to work on is that, that net code, basically, mm-hmm. to, to get that working. We have three full-time developers. Uh, one of them is full-time on networking this entire time, and it's still not done yet. Yes, so, it was yeah. hard. So, yes. 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 <laughs> so, yes. yes. Over, over one-third of our dev time. So this, this question kind of uh, floats towards, I guess, uh, game design philosophy, which maybe doesn't necessarily easy, easy an easy answer, but I was reading the GameSauce interview uh, from last year that you gave, and one of the things that you said was that you don't really like uh, tutorial levels. You like to introduce gameplay concepts mm-hmm. uh, in between and like as levels go. So yeah. how do you feel about, about the difference between like a game that maybe sets you up with like a 15-minute tutorial level Versus, like, one that maybe gives you a different mechanic every level for the first ten levels. It, it depends entirely on the overall learning curve of the game. Like, I cannot see a game like League of Legends, which has an enormous, enormously steep learning curve and turns a lot of people off because of that, to not have a tutorial. Um, however, with Tumblestone, with the bridge, they were definitely simple enough games. Both of those, the bridge had four buttons. Tumblestone has three buttons. Like, it's not that unreasonable to just throw someone into the first level and say, go, you figure it out. But that means, as a design point of view, I need to make the first level uh, basically trivial. There's, you know, no way to mess up. There's no way to die. There's no uh, there's no uh, obstacles, if you will. Um, but it's kind of just like getting their feet wet. And then the next level can start having these obstacles, but slowly. Like, it's obviously there. Don't Don't touch this thing or, you know, don't, obviously don't hit that block because there's only the one of them or something like that. Um, it's just kind of a gradual thing, which in, in that, that gradual difficulty rise is a tutorial in itself. You start to introduce any new concepts slowly, one at a time, let, let, the, uh, let the game build on that concept before introducing the next concept, again, slowly and then building on it. And just doing that acts as a tutorial. Uh, you don't actually need to handhold if your game concept is simple enough and say, okay, you know, Press left and right. The objective is to remove three blocks. If you remove the entire board, you win. I don't need to do all that because players will just figure it out because that's the only thing they can do. So I have a question that's also aimed kind of at the development side of things. Um, So Tumblestone's coming to a number of different platforms. I think you've said over 25, including uh, Windows PC, Mac OS X, Xbox One, PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, among others. Uh, How hard is it for such a small company to manage QA and release schedules with development duties on all of these platforms. Yes, um, I'm absolutely insane. Uh, one thing that abs- uh, that absolutely helps is is knowing that we wanted to do this ahead of time because uh, so with software engineering, you can easily kind of code yourself into a situation where making giant fundamental changes that allow you to be on both landscape and portrait with uh, touch or mouse and keyboard or with controller on TVs or on computers or on on phones or tablets, being able to do all of this really needs a, a software structure that at the very root of it anticipates all of this happening. And so from day one, we knew this was something that we wanted to do with Tumblestone. So both in terms of the, the game design where applicable and in our, our software architecture, we plan for this. And on top of that, we're using Unity, which helps a lot if you plan for it. Um, we don't have to integrate... APIs necessarily just for for rendering or audio or for input that all platforms have their own, so we don't need to do any of that. Unity just does it for us. Um, A lot of the work that we do have to do is the publishing work, so communicating with Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo and Valve and Apple and Google and Amazon and every every other small small company that we're also working with, um, that's kind of a logistical nightmare, 
which is why um, we're hoping to be completely done with the game concept, uh, content within the next two months, uh, start going into to QA or CERT with all of these major consoles, which can hopefully take less than a month or two, but still have four or five months before launch so that we can absolutely uh, and clearly coordinate with all of them exactly when we want to launch, like how we're, what we're doing with marketing and all of that. It's um, a lot of work. So you talked about anticipation, having a software development framework that allows you to rapidly uh, develop for multiple platforms uh, through Unity without the need for individual APIs. I'm wondering yeah. if you foresaw um, the explosion of, of of hype and interest around VR and whether we'll see a Tumblestone, uh, you know, enhanced edition or port onto an Oculus or an HTC Vive or something similar. Well, Tumblestone is a 2D game. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to to bring it to VR. It, anything could be done, but if I were to bring Tumblestone to VR or AR, it would just be incredibly forced. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't fit there. That's. I guess that's not where you should go to play Tumblestone. You should go to your phone or your computer. Uh, VR is great for, for games that are really suited for it, but Tumblestone is just a 2D game and it's not. So uh, you, you clearly are supporting a lot of platforms. Uh, what languages do you also plan to support? All of the major ones. I think we have 23 planned. Uh, it's literally anything Steam supports, literally anything that uh, uh, Xbox and, and PlayStation support we're going to do. Are you doing anything special to localize? Um, not abnormal for, for games. Basically, we have all of our, our text in, in a, an Excel document that our game can read and that we can copy and paste. So we have, like, Tumblestone English, Tumblestone French, Tumblestone German. So we just, you know, copy and paste those documents, and we send them off to, uh, to localization companies who we then pay money to translate and send back to us, and they, the game just sucks up and, and uses those uh, those new uh, pieces of text uh, whenever you change the language in the game. Cool. Uh, did you? How many languages did you have, or do you have for the bridge? Also twenty three. Yeah. Same. Oh, okay. So same ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, but with the bridge, I kind of did a little bit wrong in that I, I I think I launched with only twelve, but then we had a kind of a big demand for other languages, uh, and so I kind of gradually started folding up new languages throughout two years' worth of work. Um, I think uh, the number two selling country on Steam is uh, Russia. Actually, number one is the U.S., and number two is Russia for the bridge. And uh, Russian wasn't uh, wasn't one of our initial languages. Uh, we actually did that a few months afterwards, after we saw, like, oh, my God, so many people in Russia are playing it. We might as well support their language. And we did that, and then we got, like, an extra 10% bump in, in Russian players. Nice. So one thing that I've I've noticed between the art style uh, in the between the bridge and the tumblestone is that it, obviously the the art style has changed drastically. I mean, one is much more um, serious in the like M C Escher style, uh, and, yeah. but tumblestone is much more uh, comical. Uh, do you think that reflects the general feelings of the gameplay at all? Or yeah, sure. I think um, I think they both, in a sense, kind of have the art and gameplay somewhat married, uh, the bridge more so, because the bridge is like, I'm inside of an Escher drawing, like, I'm, I'm in this, this you know, this kind of weird, abstract universe that is Escher, and so the art is kind of Escher, uh, explicitly. But Tumblestone, I mean, it, the, the gameplay is meant to be light, it's meant to be, you know, fun and, and, and colorful, and I guess the, the artwork in, in that sense is, is also mirrored. Not definitely not to the extent of the bridge, though. In regards to Tumblestone being fun, it, it does get fairly competitive. Have you seen anyone get upset, like really upset during <laughs> playing Tumblestone? Or I've I've seen people at tournaments. Uh, we've had tournaments at PAX, like the official PAX tournament, where if you like, if you win, you will uh, get one of the PAX badges, and we got Intel to sponsor a tablet to give away to the winner of the tournament. So we had like three people, or, or sorry, 32 people sign up for the tournament uh, and just do a, a standard bracket with 32 people. And yeah, people who who lost were like kind of kind of angry, and people who won were like jumping out of their chair. So speaking of PAX, you uh, cleaned up pretty impressively with awards at PAX. Uh, I believe Destructo uh, had even called you Best of PAX East, um, which is very impressive. And uh, you've won awards as far away as Tokyo. Uh, 
were selected uh, official selection for Tokyo Game Show, yeah. right? As an yeah. indie game. And uh, so from coast to coast and all the way to the, across the Pacific, uh, you think that's, uh, that's contributing at all to, to your, uh, your development process? You guys feeling it? Do you feel like you're, you're popular? You're the yeah. darling of the world right now. Uh, that's, that's a pretty strong statement to say it's a darling of the world, but maybe, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's in terms of the awards, it's, it's definitely been a motivation for us. Um, we've always, we've always talked about it, uh, between Alex, Justin and I, uh, what would have happened with Tumblestone had we not gotten into, uh, the indie mini booth at PAX East in, I think, 2014. Yeah, 2014. So three months after development, uh, we we signed up for actually probably less than three months because three months after development, we were at PAX East. Um, it was it was really really early, uh, almost prototype build of the game. It didn't even have like the core game mode that we always show right now. But we we kind of you know threw it out there. We were we signed up for the mega booth. We got the mini booth, which is uh, basically one day we had a, a little kiosk. Where we were showing Tumblestone, and that's it. We, so we traveled all three of us across the across the country to Boston to do that. Um, and in terms of press or audience, uh, you know, making fans or whatever, that did almost nothing. Like that was that was so uh, so minor in the grand scheme of things. We would be equally as successful as we were uh, without it in terms of that. However, uh, it was so motivating for ourselves just to be there. And for the first time to see like so many people with their friends like have these like visceral reactions and start yelling at each other and just start jumping up and down and bringing back their friends and uh, that kind of experience was I think the key moment that that really told us yes this is something that we should keep working on and this is something that we shouldn't you know make a low quality game just to get it done this is something that we should put everything into for as long as we need to to make sure it's at the highest quality game we can possibly make. So there is a little bit of pressure there to deliver. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you want to put as long into it as you need to for as much as you need to to deliver. So that's, that's interesting to hear. Was that was it like that before the awards, or was that a result of the awards, do you think? A little bit of both. Um, the more awards, the more we want to put into it to make it as quality as we can, which gives us more rewards, which makes us want to put more into it. Eventually we drew a line um, for when to stop. Um, but And we decided that this summer we talked to, to various uh, platforms and they said, you know, this summer is, is the ideal time to ship Tumblestone. And uh, we don't feel like we're, we're cutting anything from our initial plan, but we are finishing it up and, uh, and kind of polishing it out at this point. So um, my last question is kind of something that's already been asked, uh, but maybe you can give us more of your personal reaction to this um, so we're not treading uh, repeating the same ground uh, so the bridge has won a number of different awards including uh, 2d best visuals at unity 2014 uh, grand prize at the unity window store competition in 2014 and you were part of the pax 10 in, Tum in uh, 2012 and tumblestone was part of the pax 10 this past year uh, can you give us a personal sense of what it feels like to have your projects so heavily acclaimed um I don't know. I I feel a bit surreal by it. Like I I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or 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 what, but like I I don't know. I get a sense that I I don't deserve it, but at the same time, like I I do realize it's it's hard to like see my own work and and think it it's good without feeling somewhat narcissistic. If that's probably not the wrong word, but um, I appreciate other people thinking it's good, and I do have fun playing Tumblestone, and I do appreciate. I mean, I do say, aha, I designed a good level in the bridge. That's, I feel clever for that or whatever. But I also play other great games, and I, I don't know. I just don't feel like I've, I've lived up to it as much, even though people almost universally disagree with me. Maybe I'm just uh, my own worst critic in that sense. <laughs> I, I see that more than once, I think, with successful people. Sometimes not. I don't know. It's, it's imposter syndrome or just a modesty, but it could be both. Uh, you know, Modesty is also a great... Uh, a great quality to have. So uh, let's go back a little bit uh, to talk about your background a little bit. Uh, we did touch on it very briefly, but we didn't really get much to it. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Microsoft. Uh, you came right out of college to go to Microsoft, right? Yep. And did they they just recruited you right out of college? You were an uh, engineering student, or what, what was your major? 
Uh, I majored in computer science, and I actually uh, interned at Microsoft uh, for two summers. So I, I met some some recruiter person, I guess, at a job fair when I was a sophomore, I guess. Um, and uh, I said, Microsoft's a cool company. I guess I'll intern. And I, I interned twice, both both summers. Uh, I was at Bing, working on their maps directions. And then uh, basically, usually the way it works, unless you're an intern who totally screws up, they offer you a job. So uh, straight out of college, I finished my, my bachelor's and master's in computer science, and I, I went to, to work as an engineer at Microsoft. So, so I, I always find this really interesting. You just sort of uh, glossed over it. Um, you, you got both your master's and your bachelor's. Uh, can you tell us about the time period that that happened in? And yeah, I, uh, I graduated high school, and then four years later, I got both a bachelor's and a master's with a 4.0. Cool. Okay, um, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, wow. Uh, whoa. I don't know what else to say other than that than wow and whoa. <laughs> if you if you were to to re redo those years, do you think you would uh, you do it the same way? Just sort of take all those classes on at once and and. That's a good question. I didn't I didn't need a master's, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Like I maybe I did. I don't know. I. I, I make the tumblestone puzzle generator, and then I, I say, "Wow, I'm I'm glad I took that graduate statistics class, or I'm I'm glad I took that graduate machine learning class." So I, I guess I did, you know, take a lot of uh, knowledge away from from all my grad classes. But at the same time, like in terms of working at Microsoft, they were they didn't even know I was going to get a master's when they gave me my job offer. I just kind of got that in the last year. Um, and obviously, as an indie, I didn't don't need one at all. So, I mean, in terms of what I needed to get to be successful. I, I don't know. The knowledge helps the actual piece of paper that says I have a master's. It doesn't. So this is an, a question that maybe is relevant, maybe isn't, depending on how much budgetary woes you have on your development. You do have staff, so... But Microsoft, I mean, you basically have infinite money. There's there's no concerns at Microsoft about budget. I can't imagine... I mean, maybe some some internally, departmentally, but... No. <laughs> there's just no concerns. If you no guys concerns. They have, they, you're right. Infinite money. Basically, print money. So, what's it like to go yeah. from printing money to what I assume is a, a pretty uh, shoestring budget at an indie company? Well, I didn't have any like I personally did not have the power to spend money at Microsoft. Like I did, I was you know the lowest level engineer, um, so I I would program things, but I can say like, oh, we should spend three million dollars on this. That was some VP's job uh, as. The leader of an indie studio, I make all of these decisions. So even if I'm spending on the scale of tens of thousands of dollars, it's um, definitely a lot more power in that sense than I had working at Microsoft. Um, and because it's basically my own personal money that I'm spending on the game. So if I'm going to, you know, buy some marketing thing for fifteen thousand dollars, that's essentially fifteen thousand dollars of my money I'm spending. Now Alex, Jess, and I, I'll, I'll do split it. So that's nice. Um, because basically we agreed that like we would split the revenue of Tumblestone, so we're going to also split the actual commitment. Can we talk a little bit about the other members of your team? Did you um, yeah. meet them prior to this? Did you meet them at Microsoft? Did you meet them through yeah. Game Dev? How did you meet your other members of your team? Uh, I met Mario at college. So before I started the bridge, I was in college. So I was uh, I had this prototype where I drew everything and it looked terrible. So I, I was showing it to my, some of my other friends in, in the computer science department and. Uh, uh, Mario and I just had a mutual friend who connected us, and basically I showed him the game. He seemed interested. He wanted to work in games, and so he drew the initial uh, the initial mock-up, the initial protagonist's uh, character. And I'm like, "Yep, you're you're hired. You, you're perfect. This is the best art I've ever seen. Work on my game, please." And so then we kind of became partners and friends ever since that. And that was in uh, 2010, I think. Um, as for Alex and Justin, uh, I met them both at Microsoft. Uh, I think in 2000. 10 also, or 2011 maybe, I was at a uh, Microsoft um, games club, so the, or game development club, so um, it was called Game Devs, and basically every month uh, any interested hobbyists at Microsoft would get together and uh, just uh, show their games off, just have, have drinks or whatever, and, and just, you know, talk game dev stuff. Um, and uh, I met Alex and Justin there, and we did a, a lot of game jams together, so probably for for three-ish years, we, we made like four or five game jams between the three of us. Um, Tumblestone actually started as one of those game jams. We were just like, hey, let's do this uh, this random game jam this week this weekend, and uh, 
uh, we had a concept that really, really works really well, and we decided this is this is so much fun for what we've made in 48 hours. We're just gonna keep on making it, and eventually, we didn't know it at the time, but we were gonna spend two more years on it. So you obviously love games and developing games, and that that shows sure. just in the way that you talk about uh, you know how much you really wanted to develop games throughout working your tenure at Microsoft, and how you even started you know in college. The bridge has, has gone all the way back to college. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about that. Let's go a little bit into the heart of the gamer in the developer. Uh, behind every good developer, of course, is a, a, somebody who loves to play video games. Sure. So what's your favorite kind of game, of video game? Puzzle games. Wow, that was easy. That's uh, not a surprise. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite puzzle game? Portal. Portal. Now, mm. I, it's interesting because I don't always think of Portal as being a puzzle game, but it definitely no. is a puzzle game. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, I mean, um, it's just because of the way it's laid out. I don't, I don't tend to think of you know. In terms of like the the story, the, layout. the story and the the fact that it's kind of first person and all that other stuff doesn't makes me kind of not think of it. I guess it doesn't fall under first person shooter for sure. Interesting. I'm I'm not the best at categorizing games. It's definitely a puzzle game. You're definitely right. That's cool. It's also I I would also categorize it as a first person shooter because you are in first person and you are shooting portals and therefore you are a first person shooter. It's a first-person um, shooter puzzler. Wow, yeah. now we're starting to get very deep. And there's enemies in Portal as well that will sure. shoot at you. Yeah, it's got those aspects too. So you got to, I mean, puzzle games don't necessarily need to be totally discreet without any kind of, uh, everything doesn't need to be suckab on, right? Like you can have enemies that are shooting at you. You can have some, some tactile skill to play in a game and still have it be a puzzle game. Uh, like Braided also is another one of my, my favorite games. Uh, but they, there are spikes, there are little enemies that if you touch them, you die. Like, There's some actual skill, gaming skill, that's required to play the game, but at the same time, it's very much a puzzle game. You need to, to think through and solve these puzzles before you make any of these actions. So I actually have a question for you that is in regards to starting game development. Um, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe never made a game before? Yeah not familiar with computer science, and can you remember the first game or prototype you ever made and what that was like? Sure. Um, my advice to someone who's never programmed before, who wants to make a game, is to try out Game Maker. Uh, basically, there are tutorials online where you can just you can watch a few hours of video. So obviously, with any game, no matter how small, and with any learning experience, you're going to have some hours of, of learning to do. But watch the watch the, uh, the tutorials, and you'll learn how to do any simple scripting, which in GameMaker isn't actually coding. It's kind of just like a visual scripting. But you can learn how to make Pong, or learn how to make really small games on the scale of Pong, or like Pac-Man. Actually, Pac-Man might even be too complex for your first set of games. But start super small, and just ramp up really slowly. Don't, I mean, it's easy to, like, fantasize about having a very uh, grand uh, game in mind. Like, you know, I talk to people who've never worked on their first game. They're, like, freshman game students, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm working on a project. It's kind of like Skyrim. No, stop, no. 20 years from now, maybe have that idea if you're successful. But for right now, work on something like, you know, Pac-Man, but in reverse. You know, something small but with a unique twist that makes it your own. That's definitely a, a good direction to start with, and 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 say and write all these these uh, great ideas that you have down, and, and and revisit them 20 years later when you have a team who can make something on the scale of Skyrim. Um, but as for my first first game, I think I was uh, in, I wasn't I was a freshman in high school, and I had a little uh, TA83 calculator, um, and I the calculator had like a, a basic scripting language on it, so like you could actually go in and, and write in in visual. It wasn't visual basic, it was like assembly level basic, just like storing uh, storing data to, to registry values and moving them around and doing really low level things, but I kind of figured out how that works by uh, deconstructing other programs. Like there was this little snake game that I downloaded for the calculator and like I, I opened it up and I could see the source code, I could play with little values and I'm like, oh wow, this makes the snake go faster. And eventually I like spent like an entire semester of high school in study hall just, like, basically building my own snake maze game where, like, it had walls, and you had to, like, navigate around the walls while also being a little snake. Uh, and so I'd say that was, that was my, my first game back freshman year of high school many, many years ago. So that was the first game that you ever 
developed. What was the first game that you ever played? What got you the gaming bug? I don't even remember. I suppose, I think the year I was born was the year the Nintendo Entertainment System came out. So I think, like, before I was born, my dad had already bought me one of those and bought me, like, Super Mario. So I was probably, like, born and my dad put a controller in my hand is like, yeah, you can play this game. I don't know. I don't know. I was, I was probably playing video games since I was one years old. So now, now we sound like we're about to spin an epic tale about some some hero born with a game controller in his hand, tied here to save the universe. <laughs> so your father is really into gaming? No, he's not. He assumed I would be, though. I don't know. He I, I, he must have saw the the NES come out, and uh, I think when he when the doctors like. Incredibly sexist thing, but it was 1989. So when the doctor said, "Oh, you're having a boy," he's like, "Well, I'm buying a game system." So <laughs> I, I feel like game systems were less gendered back then, but perhaps oh, I'm wrong. <laughs> That's what he's always told me is that when when he found out I was a boy and not a girl, he was like, oh, "I'm going to buy him my son a game system or something like that." <laughs> so I was born already owning an NES. So, do you have a current-gen favorite system, or you just play across all of them? I guess my, my favorite system now is PC. Certainly yeah. the most... <laughs> certainly the most versatile. I mean, I can uh, boot up the Xbox app now on my PC and, and go ahead and play directly from my Xbox One stream right to one of my three monitors, uh, which is mm-hmm. pretty awesome. I can then, with a little mindfuckery, I can then go ahead and stream from that, when, from that PC to Twitch. So I can stream to my Xbox and then stream out to Twitch. Absolutely. Um, which is, is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> it's, a fairly, uh, it's a fairly advanced world that we've come upon. So PC gaming is good. Uh, PC gaming I like as well for, for modding. I mean, I think it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, it's really powerful to have all the, the modding tools you have on PC. I think it's cool to be able to, to tweak and poke and move around things when you want to. Mm-hmm. Also... Uh... Steam on PC, of course, is a great way to find indie games which uh, might not come to Xbox or PlayStation maybe because they don't have the budget or, or for whatever reason, but you can get Steam, get a, a, a dozens of great indie games there. Hundreds. Dozens of hundreds. Thousands now of great indie games on Steam. I think the the big the develop the the big developers are trying to do a better job the the big console the big three console people they are trying to do a better job with that now I know Microsoft has their um, early access program which gives you a limited number of indie games that are would be like Steam Greenlight kind of games and then I don't know what Sony's doing um, um they are doing a lot to help um it's still a curational process um the bar is a lot lower than it used to be, so you need more than just an idea and a poorly put together video, but if you have something genuinely playable and something that could be interesting, it's not terribly difficult to get on the consoles in that sense. It is, however, still a lot of work. Um, what's going to be... I mean, it's a lot of work for us on Tumblestone, and we are, we're all, like, senior 10-plus years of development engineers on the team, and I've done it all before with the bridge. We're still having trouble with it. Um, most indie teams probably can't get over the technical and publishing hurdle of actually coming to consoles. It's a lot more work than making a PC game. Do you think we're moving towards an environment where consoles disappear and we just all play on PCs that play on our TV with devices that play to the TV? I don't know. Um, I I hope consoles are still around because I, I like developing for them. Um, with, with PCs, it's, it's actually... Um, there is a lot of competition. Uh, as in someone in my position, I, I, I guess I do almost selfishly like less competition in, in the game industry, as much as I want my, my friends and, and uh, peers to succeed with their game, of course. Um, on consoles, there's less competition, and therefore the player-to-game ratio is more in my favor on consoles. So as a developer uh, who, who has a technical, technical capabilities to come to consoles, um, I, I hope consoles aren't going anywhere. One last console-based question, then we're probably going to wrap up here, unless anybody else has questions. What do you think about the fringe consoles? Uh, and I notice that you're publishing on the Ouya, you're publishing on uh, all the all the app stores that that exist out there. Uh, 
you know, the PS3, the PS4, you're publishing backlog, basically. You're publishing to the Wii U. I don't know if you're publishing on the Wii, but the Wii U. Not Wii U. The App Store, Android, of course, the Windows 10 mm-hmm. Store, on the Ouya. What mm-hmm. do you think about all those sort of fringe markets? Do you see them kind of converging together and eventually forming what, what I hope would be a one-time unified app space? Or do you think we're going to sit it out and we're so lots of outside the way it is now where we have all these outliers? From from a business standpoint, it doesn't really make sense to have a unified app space. Do you spend ten dollars on a game? Who gets the money? Do they, do they split it? No, of course Microsoft and Sony aren't going to split that money. So, I don't think anything will get unified in that sense. Uh, but one nice thing about some of these fringe consoles is that, um, aside from obviously Microsoft and Sony and, and, and Nintendo's consoles, they're all based on Android. So I can just make a single landscape TV controller-based Android version of the game. And I can literally just send that APK file to all these people who can just publish the game. Maybe I'll have to give them, you know, art assets for their marketplace based on those dimensions and whatever. But as, in terms of the game porting, as long as they don't have any APIs for their own achievements or whatever to implement, to integrate uh, into the game, I can just send them a generic copy. And so in that sense, like, we can do dozens of uh, Android consoles, which there are now. There's Ouya and Android TV and Fire TV and Samsung TV. And, like, I probably get, like, two emails a month from just random companies that says, hey, we have a, uh, a new uh, Android micro console coming out. Would you like to put the bridge on? I'm like, sure. Here's an APK. Like, talk to my lawyer who will handle it from here, and that's all I have to do. Of course, I make, like, less than $300 from each of these, but, like, it's still, like, no work at all for me. That's pretty exciting. I wasn't really aware of that, so I guess the back ends of all those consoles being the same is what really matters. Yeah, when you have to integrate API, uh, their APIs for achievements, like I did do that for Android TV and uh, uh, Fire TV and because those are, you know, Google and Amazon. Like, those are major companies, so I, you know, I figured it was worth the extra work to, to go because they're going to market it. But any random company that's just, like, some startup out of China that's just, like, trying to get their apps on some TV, I'm not going to spend time on it, but I'll send them an APK. That's pretty cool. That's the end of my line of questions. Uh, you all got anything else? Uh, no, I've, I've asked everything that has come to mind. I think we've covered uh, a lot, actually, and I've got a lot of uh, insight into uh, indie game development thanks to our interview with Ty, and we learned a lot about uh, the inner workings of how some of this stuff works. Uh, I wasn't aware that it was so ubiquitous with Android that you just fire off an APK as long as Everything is all cool, so um, that was actually really interesting. So, so if you're out there, develop for Android. Yeah, if you're <laughs> you're starting out, develop for Android. Um, Not a bad idea, especially making it work in both uh, Portrait with Touch and Landscape Controller. If you can just do that generically to make an APK that just dies either, then yeah, if you can make that, you can use it everywhere. Very cool. Thank you so much for listening to episode ten of Broken Cast with. Fiona, you want to say goodbyes? Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us, Ty. I really appreciate you coming out today. Uh, That's all I got. Uh, Y'all have a nice day. Renee, do you want to say anything? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for your time, Ty, and thank you everyone else for listening. We'll catch you next time. And Ty, can you give us a rundown of where our listeners can find more information about you, your company, and your games? Sure. So uh, you can find more information about Tumblestone at tumblestonegame.com. It's coming out uh, summer 2016 to basically every platform, every modern platform under the sun. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Broken Cats. Keep it locked to our website, brokenjoysticks.net. Over the next few months, we've got some absolutely exciting things planned, and we are going to keep tabs on Ty's game as it approaches release.